Hey gang, it's John. All right, saddle up for another deep dive. This time we are welcoming back, I don't know, maybe our favorite guest we've ever had. Up there for sure. Feeway Bill of the Tubes is back to give us a deep dive on the Completion Backward Principle, the Tubes' breakout album from 1981. Produced by David Foster, features Steve Lukather. It's the one that's got Talk to You Later and I Don't Want to Wait Anymore. These are the hits, and we get to hear from Fee all the behind-the-scenes stories. It's fantastic. This is a classic, classic album. Now, in addition, you probably know by now, Fee has a brand-new solo album called Fee Waybill Rides Again. It is excellent. It was produced by uh, Richard Marks, his buddy. Richard features on some of the songs, co-written, sings back up, whatever it might be. And uh, this album is well, well worth your attention. So here's the deal. This interview actually takes place in two pieces because we started out talking one day and uh, we were talking about the new album and then my recorder crapped out. That's never happened before. And so we had to reschedule the second half, which was deep diving the completion album a few days later. So that's why there's, there's some difference here and it may sound a little different, may seem a little different. That's why. Okay. So anyway, here it is. Feeway Bill of the Tubes talking about the completion backward principle. Okay. So let's, let's kick this off then with talking about Feeway Bill rides again. First of all, where, I mean, where did this album come from? Because it felt to me like it sort of came out of heaven. It just sort of plopped out, sort of plopped out of nowhere. <laughs> As you know, Richard Richard Marx is my best friend, and we've been very close for years and years, and for 37, 38 years. And he, you know, about, gosh, we wrote the first song like seven years ago. We didn't even think about a, a record or anything. He just had this rock riff that was, too, and he was, a, he was doing a record at the time, and he said, I can't do this song. It's too hard. It's too rock and roll. And he said, why don't you do it? And why don't you write the lyrics? And so I did, and we recorded Faker, the first song on the record, back at Richard's studio back in 2013 and uh, in Chicago. And I used, to go, I used to go up there every summer to Chicago. And Richard's, he, he has three sons, and I'm the godfather to all three boys. And when they were younger, we used to take a trip every summer, and they had a cabin up in Manaqua, Wisconsin. And we would drive from Chicago up to 
Minocqua, Wisconsin, and uh, and and spend a week at the cabin and just you know with the boys and and just go fishing and go go karting and horseback riding and hiking and just just screw around you know and it was funny because when they, when the, when the boys were young you know Richard's wife Cindy his ex wife was very kind of strict and would never let them curse. Oh. At the house, they never. They could never say. She was kind of religious, and she didn't uh-huh. want them saying any curse words. And these were when the kids were young. You know, they were they were you know eight, nine, ten years old or something like that. And so we used to go, we used to go up and drive up in the car together. And we had a rule that we could just we could curse like like sailors the entire trip, and we would never mention it again. Never tell their mother. I would keep their secret. Richard keep their secret. But boy, they could just go crazy cursing, you know, and like, get it out of their system. And so one of those trips, he, like I said, he had this lick, and he said, "Let's let's record it." And so uh-huh. I wrote the lyrics, and we recorded it at his studio in in Chicago. And and uh, his son Brandon played drums on that first oh, yeah. track. And in the next year or two, we recorded like three more. So we had four songs. And so at that point, we're going, okay, well, let's let's do another solo record. And because uh-huh. the one before I had done in '97, uh, "Don't Be Scared by These Hands," Richard was also involved in that one, mm-hmm. and uh, and another guy named Bruce Geich, who is a guitar player that that mm-hmm. we've known for years, and we did it at Bruce's studio out in the San Fernando Valley. So we did. We recorded four songs. Then we kind of just forgot all about it and Richard went on to tour and to do another couple records and then he ended up getting divorced and moved to Arizona uh, to to California and I mean his whole world for four or five years was just turned upside down and we never got around to continuing finishing okay and and so then about a year ago everything kind of smoothed out and Richard was living in Malibu and had married Daisy Fuentes and he was happy and his life was great and he was touring and everything was kind of smoothed and and got back to normal and he said well let's finish this he said, i've got some time let's write some more songs and let's finish this off so great. we did great. and so i wrote another three songs and then three new songs and then there was two other songs that were existing already one of them the ballad say goodbye uh, was a, a track that I had written for Richard for one of his earlier albums, and he never put it on. The, on he never used it. Resolved to be staying the next day to stay in all I protected. My dream of love is denied. Without ever closing my eyes Say goodbye one last time Say goodbye, you're not mine It's over, it's over Say goodbye in the dark Say goodbye, broken heart It's over
just hanging around and I used to listen to it on my iTunes and it's so sad and I just I kept telling him Richard this song makes me cry every time I listen to it yeah and he goes well let's do it then you just I'll take my vocal off of it and we'll use that track and you replace it and I said okay great and because he's all he we just replaced the lead vocal so he all the background vocals are Richard and the the band is Richard's band and then there was one other track that I did not write, and the, that was the track called Still You on the Inside that Richard had written with Chad Kroger. Reflection in the window, it's the same old face. Background, small town, everywhere you look around. Tell me what you're running from. Flip a coin and let it land in your hand Heads are gonna stay but it's tail so you can Move to another town And hide away sure you won't be found But it's still just you on the inside You can pretend it'll be alright Sell it to yourself but you know it's just a lie Cause it's still just you on the inside Still you on the inside Nothing faster than the speed of your leaving Hundred miles an hour and there ain't no slow And he wrote it for Chris Daughtry for the Daughtry oh, record. Oh, interesting. And huh. Yeah. And I and he and Daughtry didn't want to do it, and I just loved the song, and I kept saying, yeah. "Fuck that! What the fuck? This guy doesn't yeah. want to do this song. This is crazy. This yeah. is a great. I love this song." And then Richard actually replaced Chad's demo. Chad sang on the demo, and then Richard replaced it and recorded it and used it as a bonus track on one of his records a couple mm. of records ago. But I, I said, dude, we, I want to, I want to sing this song. It just, I can't get it out of my head. And so uh, he said, okay, well, it's pretty high. And I went, yeah, no, I can handle it, no problem. <laughs> so I did, and I, and that's, that's the only song on the record that I didn't write. And that again is Richard's, you know, Richard's guys playing. Sure. Okay. And then we wrote some other. We wrote "Don't Pull the Trigger," and we wrote "Meant to Be Alone," and we wrote "Man of the World." Everything about me that I 
like all those. Yeah, yeah. The, and those were the, those were brand new, and then we okay. went in here in L.A. and recorded them. And then okay. you know we got to nine yeah. songs, and and That's enough. and he was getting it was it was early in the year, and it was I guess it was about March maybe, and we were at nine songs, and I had we had mixed them and mastered and. And I said, well, do you want to try to do another one? He goes, no, fuck it, nine songs, that's enough. You're, you're good. And he was about to, he was about to head out. Uh, this is right when the freakout hit. He had a he had a big Euro tour planned, like 31 shows in Europe, and then he was coming back to uh, the USA for a big summer tour. And he wanted to. I was going to do a solo show, my first ever solo show, at a little club here in L.A. And and use Richard and his band and you know Matt Scannell and and Richard's guys and uh, Brian and Why Not and Jay and and yeah. uh, and and then the whole thing just hit you know as Ugh. they say yes. band, and yes. everything our world came crumbling down you know his Euro tour got canceled my solo show canceled but yeah. then we said well let's just let's finish it off. Let's yeah. let's get let's do the artwork. Let's master it. Let's manufacture it. Let's finish this, you know, because people are all stuck at home wanting something new to do or new so to listen true. to. So let's do it anyway. Our Prairie Prince from the Tubes is a brilliant artist, and I and I gave him all my ideas. I said, "This is what I want to do," and I and uh, I said, "I want you to do it," and I want you to to do the album art, and uh, so he really? did create that. Prairie yeah. did that cover. Prairie did well. He, Prairie, the cover is a photo. Prairie did everything but the front cover. Oh, okay. The, the photo okay. was a, a guy named Brian Randall, who is a, a friend of ours. He he lives with Sandra Bullock, and Sandra oh. Bullock and my my wife Elizabeth use the same hairdresser, the same oh. cutter, and <laughs> and we, we were looking for a photographer, and. Her name is Tanya, and Tanya said, "Well, you know, Sandy's boyfriend Brian is a great photographer." And I went, "Okay, let's." And so we went to UCLA and went to the Sculpture Garden and did a whole bunch of pictures. And we were actually going to use a different picture than the one we used. But then huh. when I gave it to Prairie, you know, he said, "Well, I'm not crazy about this picture." And I said, "Well, okay, well, let me send you all the pictures that Brian took." And so I did, and then he he picked that one, and it, it actually was he kind of changed every. He put that whole sky background on it, and he put the Mayan pyramid thing together. Mm. I don't know if you've seen the whole artwork or just no, the just the cover on Spotify and stuff. I haven't been able to get a yeah. hard copy yet. It's really a nice package, and cool. and that's, that's another thing. Uh, you know, I kept talking to my wife i said well where what's what's the title going to be where are we going to put it and she goes you don't need the title you don't need a title because on everything like spotify and itunes and amazon they they have the title right below the album you, <laughs> you know they, i just want to put your picture on the cover and that's it uh -huh. and right when they put it up on the digital website they'll have the title underneath it <laughs> i said oh okay so the title is actually on the back cover of the oh, album i wonder art, album art <laughs> The title's on the back, and then there's a, it's like one of those three-panel wallet things where mm -hmm. the, there's a third panel that folds inside, and that's got all the song lists. Got it. The, the, the song titles on it. Cool. And then there's an insert. I put in an insert that has all the lyrics. And, uh, Great. 
uh, credits and a little dedication to Richard and dedication to my wife and all the, you know, mixed, mastered, etc. studio yeah. bullshit, all that. Yeah. Okay. I have so, a couple of questions about it. First of all, the Don't Pull the Trigger starts with Richard telling you about the riff. Here's the idea, Fee. It's going to be a little uh, fucked up, but so I... I can't really play the riff on acoustic, but the riff goes. I'll play the riff and then it goes right into the verse, right into a chorus. So, two, three, and. Was that real, yeah. or did you? I mean, did you recreate no, that for no, the no, that, album, that, or what? That he sent me an email, or maybe it was a text. I don't know with okay. it with it attached, and that goes on, you know, to the demo. Yeah. You know, that continues in that mode with just an acoustic, acoustic guitar and him kind of singing the the, lick, the lead lick. That was another thing my wife did. Yeah. And when she heard that, she went, "God, what? That's so cool." Why don't we put that as the intro yes. to the song? Yes. And and have the and have the song just turn to the instrumental yes. track, you know, right after his little intro thing. Yes. And Richard loved the idea, and and it's funny because when we sent it to the guy, the guy mixes it. A guy named Matt Prock is our mixer, and he lives in Chicago. And we sent him the track, and then we sent him that piece, and then he sent me back the mixed version, and the, and that wasn't there. And I went, Matt, what the fuck? Yeah. Where's our little itch? He goes, I didn't know you want to actually want to use that. I went, yes, <laughs> I want to use it, and I want you to, to make it roll right into the beginning of the, yeah. of the track, of the song. Yeah, yeah. And he Genius. goes, oh, okay, I can, okay, well, okay. And I don't know if he, how crazy he was about the idea, but you know, I just said, no, I really like that. And it's funny because everybody, you know, everybody's going, wow, what, what is that? You know? Yeah. And... Uh, Who's that guy? My, I just talked to my brother this morning. He goes, well, who's that guy that's kind of <laughs> talking? On, and I went, that's Richard. That's Rich, Richard. Billy. That's, yes. that's Richard Marks. It's such a fascinating so, insight anyway. into where songs come from, you know? Richard, and yeah. he's right. You can't play that riff on, a, on an acoustic guitar. But as soon as he says right. it and you hear the finished product, you're like, that's exactly what was going on in Richard's head. I get it now. You right. know? Right. He was hearing it. And 
Exactly, and he's such a oh my god, he's such a brilliant songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. And you know we have written so many songs over the years, and uh, I've written a lot of songs for his records and our my records, and we yeah. wrote a couple of tube songs together, and uh, and yeah. I've still we still remain you know the best. I'm we're like brothers. I'm Good. actually closer to him than I am to my little brother, and I kind of you know he calls me his big brother. And, yeah. And the kids, I'm Uncle Fee to the kids. That's wild. Know, and they all live out here, too, now. The boys all live out here, and the Marx Brothers. And they're brilliant Marx musicians. Brothers. Oh, man, you wouldn't... I mean, brilliant. Brandon is a great drummer, and, and Lucas, the middle child, can play keyboards, and he wrote... I don't know if you've heard Richard's latest release, but mm. Lucas... Uh, produced and wrote a, a couple of songs on Richard's new record. Wow. And then the youngest one, Jesse, is a speed metal guitarist. Really? <laughs> He's in a speed metal band. Nice. And, you know, we just went, what? Yeah. He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not writing, I'm not writing romantic ballads, dude. <laughs> <laughs> I'm playing my guitar. That's wild. Which is hilarious, I think. So yeah, we really enjoyed making Good. it. We, we we went around to little dinky studios around town here, and a vocal studio here, and a little overdub studio there, and you know we used Richard's guys, why not? And Brian on drums, and Matt Scannell played guitar, and Richard's guitar player from his band Jay, he played guitar and you know, and we sang Richard sang most of all of the background vocals. You can tell. And, uh, it's so good. It's I'm I'm really, really proud of it. It's certainly it the be. best record I've ever made. And we're getting it it debuted at number ten on Amazon new releases. Really? Which kind of yeah. stunned me. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what ten out of what, fifteen or well, something. I don't who know. Who knows? But still but, uh, I I was amazed. And that is great. It's been getting, it's been really, yeah, really, it's been getting rave reviews. You yeah. know, we're, the management company is going to do a press release, and, you know, we're looking at trying to, I need to, my, uh, I'm, I'm looking at a friend of mine to kind of put me on the whole social media platform. Because mm -hmm. I don't, you know, I don't really tweet, mm -hmm. and I don't do Facebook, and I really, you know, I'm kind of private, and I really don't do all of that. You know Instagram, and know. my wife does it, and you know Richard does it like crazy, and he's you know he put out an Instagram that went to like two hundred thousand people, yeah. and he goes, "Dude, you have to do this. <laughs> it's I mean, true. You have to do this." It's true. So now okay, we're just gonna great. we're just gonna deep dive completion backwards. Great. Okay, so for starters, this album came out in uh, nineteen eighty one, I believe, and I was curious. Yes. So this apparently was. You know, uh, making a statement about corporate rock, but I have to admit, other than the packaging for the album and the sleekness of the sound with David Foster, what are the themes that are corporate-y inside of the album? Well, I don't think there really are any. I mean, we don't okay. do that. Lyrically, in terms of, you know, trying to parody or, you know, make fun of the corporate style of, mm -hmm. of music. We didn't really do that. Okay. We did it in the cover and that was, I mean, you know, and then in our live show we actually did a, a, a song called The Business Dance which is, which you can see somewhere on YouTube, I'm wow. sure, which is a, kind of a sarcastic comment on the businessman, not mm -hmm. really corporate rock. You know, it was our first record on Capitol and 
you know, we wanted to do great music. We wanted, yeah. and we had David Foster help us, mm-hmm. and he did a lot of arrangement stuff with us. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, he was, there. he seems like an odd choice, unless you were really sort of strategically going for the gold, because the tubes had always been this very provocative fringe cult, you know, act. Todd Rundgren came in, but going with Foster is a, that is making a decision that we are going to search. We're seeking the pop charts. I mean, he's, he wasn't the Foster that we know now, but still, you know? Yeah. No, it was, that was absolutely, that was absolutely the choice. Okay. That was our only, that was the choice we had to make because we had just been released from A&M records Mm -hmm. after five albums, actually six albums, mm-hmm. that really didn't reach mass media, or the radio, or massive sales. I mean, we had this reputation of being this wacky cult, theatrical mm-hmm. cult band with an incredibly risque and elaborate stage show, mm-hmm. but it didn't translate into record sales. Yeah. And that's why A&M ended up dumping us. And, you know, we went to we went to quite a few different record companies and everybody knew, you know, they had SoundScan. Everybody knew what the deal was. They, they don't sell records. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so when we went to Capitol, that was part of the deal. I mean, when Bobby Columbia signed us, he said, you guys have got to get on the radio. I mean, you guys have got to sell records here. You know, they gave us a three-album deal, but it was each album was an option on their part. Mm-hmm. And you know, they said if you you know if you don't break out of this cult status, we won't give you another deal. Mm-hmm. We interviewed a number of pro- of uh, producers, you know, and David Foster had just done Boogie Wonderland. Yeah, yeah. The, with uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. And we loved that album. And I, I mean, God, they were so great. And it was such a great album. And, you know, and he wrote After the Love is Gone, which went to number one. And mm-hmm. at the time, you know, everybody was looking for the next big ballad, the next yeah. big power ballad. And, you know, Journey had just had a big hit with a power ballad. And Ario Speed Hat Wagon had a big hit with a power ballad. But no, that was definitely... Uh, and a lot of people shot us down for it, I have to mm, say. They went, really? oh, you sold out. But it was either that or get out of the business mm. because that was where we were at the yeah. point, yeah. at that point. And, uh, hmm. It just seems like an I, odd pairing, putting the sleekness of Foster with the, you know, the rebellion of the tubes, but yet it worked. Um, did he know well, who you I, were? I think it did. Was he a I, fan of yours? I think it did. No, okay. he didn't know who we were. He had no idea. He had never done a rock album in his That's life. That's true. That's true. <laughs> he didn't know anything about rock and roll. You know, he was this nice Canadian guy yeah. who did all these great R&B records, you know. Yeah. But the guy, I have to say, you know, I mean, and he came up and he was real, you know, he was he was not wearing gold jewelry or, mm-hmm. you know, he wasn't an L.A. kind of guy. And he was kind of pretty normal. He came up to meet us in San Francisco wearing a sweatshirt and Levi's, mm. you know. <laughs> and we went into our studio and we sat down and we started playing him songs. And his sense, his instinct with with arrangement was just ridiculous. I yeah. mean, five minutes into the, into the session, we knew. Wow. This guy really knows his business. This guy can play. This guy can turn our wacky songs 
into songs that pay off. He always, yeah. he kept always that was he always said you know it's got to pay off. Yeah, it's yeah. got to pay off. It's got to and and like he added some arrangement twists to Amnesia, and he wrote Talk to You Later with, mm-hmm. with Steve Lukather and I, and they were looking for a ballad, you know, they wanted, the Capitol wanted to release a ballad, and that was another thing, you know, we had never had a ballad right. before, right. We, weren't, we had never released a ballad, we didn't yeah. really write ballads, and, but Vince Welnick, who is no longer with us, obviously, mm-hmm. Vince started playing him the chords to Don't Want to Wait Anymore, and mm-hmm. David said, Man, he said, "There's your ballad," yeah. and and he and he helped Vince with arranging it, and I sat down and wrote the lyrics for it. But yeah, I mean, it was an odd pairing, but it worked, and they, I love that album. And, and yeah. he took he took the material we had, and I think it's the best album we ever did. I mean, it's it's certainly not you know the most cultish or mm-hmm. quirky album. True. Those songs stand up. Yeah, and they still stand up. I mean, last year, I think we told you, or told mm-hmm. you before, last year, you know, we, we for the first time ever, we did the whole album. I mean, mm-hmm. we never, the other bands have done this before, but we never had done, uh, performed an album, you know, in order. Mm-hmm. And that was the first one we ever did. Yeah, and I wish I had seen Universal that. actually, Universal printed up vinyl for us, and we started selling vinyl and with audiophile 180 gram vinyl with big with a blue record mm-hmm. and man i mean we're still selling them i mean that's, that's right. the number one item at the website is signed completion backward principle albums <laughs> nice. great nice. uh, <laughs> right. okay well let me ask you some uh, de- for some before we go track by track let me ask you for some details on the the album itself so first of all that's that's a really iconic album cover, and I don't. I try not to throw that word around because it's easy to just apply that to everybody. But this, that album cover is so striking. Where, who came up with that? Where did it come from? Who decided that? We had always done our own artwork and photography and all of our own graphics, and and Mike and Prairie came up with it, mm. and. Uh, Mike and Prairie came up with it, and we wanted a, you know, kind of a, a logo, a corporate logo, a corporate type logo, and we had never used, I mean, before we had that, you know, that toothpaste mm-hmm. logo, mm-hmm. The, the, the squirt logo, we called it, mm-hmm. which was, which was actually was toothpaste <laughs> that they formed into the tubes, but they came up with that, and it was a, a PVC. It was a. Mm-hmm. It was. It was a plumbing fixture. Sure. It was a. It was a PVC T, and we kind of cut a like a, a PVC coupler thing and glued it to the bottom to make it look more like a T instead mm-hmm. of a cross. You know. <laughs> uh, but they. We came up with ourselves, and okay. you know that on the background, the blue background, and that was all us. Yeah. And we uh, for the tour we had a a giant inflatable tea, really? a white inflatable tea that we blew up, a big balloon, and then we had these big, uh, I don't know if you ever seen the uh, YouTubes, but we had giant blue uh, columns, like, oh, nice. like uh, 10 feet, of circular columns, like 10 feet across and like 30 feet high, uh-huh. these giant blue columns, and 
in we had four of them we had two 30 footers in the back and two 10 footers in the front and we attached lights to the top of them and they spun around so you could move them back and forth and and inside the big 10 foot wide ones in the back well like one of them was my quick change room oh really (laughs) yeah and we we covered them in this really thick cloth Uh uh-huh kind of royal blue cloth that you couldn't see through and so one of them was my quick change room and the other one was like a guitar tuning station got it you know for the the guitar room yeah yeah okay and the and the ones in the front spun around, and the and the back ones had spotlight operators up at the top of them. So the two back ones had spotlights with guys up there with with moving spotlights, and the front ones spun around. They didn't have anything inside of the front ones, but uh-huh. they just had lights all over them. Cool. But you know that was us. That yeah. was all Mike and Prairie. Okay. Okay. I gotta say one quick complaint about. Um, your logo. So about three and a half years ago, after you came on the first time, you were telling me about how you were going to be opening for Alice Cooper in the UK. And my production partner Uh that I do this podcast with lives in Scotland. And so I flew out to Scotland to see you open for Alice Cooper at the Hydro in November of that year. Oh, and Glasgow. Yes. And it was you uh, the Mission UK were the middle band, which was fun because I loved them right. and I didn't know they were on the bill until I was in line. And then Alice Cooper. And we go to the merch table and I buy, I'm dying to buy a Tubes t-shirt, which I did. But it was this odd, it was black and it had the Tubes like written in this cursive that you wouldn't even know what it was saying unless someone told you. And it wasn't the iconic Tubes logo that I really wanted. Uh, it was a strange shirt. Uh, but anyway, I bought it anyway because I love you. But wanted you to know that it was it was a and it was kind of silver right it was like we called it the titanium logo yeah you know and mike and prairie did that one too Uh and they were it was supposed to be so you know graffiti like that Uh you couldn't quite tell what the hell it was yeah that's what i bought they're a little you know they may have been a little too cute for their own good (laughs) that's okay that's okay um okay we got to find out what i mean my understanding is that you were looking at, a, you found some old record from the 80s called The Completion Backwards Principle, and it's a business idea. I was trying to look right. it up, and everything I was Googling, I just, it kept pointing me back to you. Tell us what uh, the inspiration for, tell us about it. Tell us, what is, why this? Uh, a friend of ours named Paul Notter, who is also no longer with us, mm-hmm. he found this record by a guy named Stanley Patterson, and it was a sales technique Mm -hmm. and Stanley Patterson used to go around this was back in the 50s this is when this record came out it was a 78 I think and Stanley Patterson used to go around to to sales forces you know like I mean back then this was this Mm -hmm. was 50s this was when sales was door-to-door sure this is when guys were selling encyclopedias door-to-door or Mm -hmm. selling fuller brushes door-to-door or or whatever and so he used to go around and give clinics to this these sales forces and he produced a record that explained his principle which was completion backward principle which meant that you would visualize it was a uh, imagination creates reality that was Mm. part of the deal Okay. Imagination creates reality, and the salesman was supposed to visualize the completed sale 
before going up to the door mm. and the completion backward principle. So he was visualizing the completed sale before Got it. he went okay. to the door and tried to sell the brushes or and whatever. And worked backwards. It sounds and like Oprah's thought, secret or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, imagination creates reality. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And we thought that that was, you know, so fitting for the whole kind of corporate Mm -hmm. thing that we were going for, mm -hmm. you know, this ancient, you know, 30-year-old sales technique. So that's why, that's where we got it. And okay. that's where, uh, in the video, I did a long, a long speech about it. Because uh, we did a, we did a, an hour-long video called the Tubes video for that album. For Completion oh, Becker. I don't think I've ever seen that. And, and, yeah, it's on, it's, it's on LaserDisc. It was on uh, VHS tape. There's a, another kind of corporate speak to in that video. We call it the tube talk, and it's another kind of corporate speak, you know, meaningless double speak kind uh, of Orwellian uh, double speak kind of thing, <laughs> which you know also kind of uh, emphasizes the whole kind of bullshit corporate thing right. that. You know that we were going for with, yeah. the, with everybody wearing suits and everybody's hair slicked down and right. you know. As right. I mentioned, okay. The last okay. Well, good. Let's this go to track one. Talk to you later. Another example of the completion backward principle. If you can possibly manage the time, please play both sides at one meeting. Obviously, the intro is... Did the intro come directly from that record you got, or was that a separate recording? No, that, that was That was Stanley. straight off of it, was it? Okay. Okay. Yeah, we took it right okay. off the record. Okay. My understanding, my understanding is that this was the last one recorded. You guys have done all the other tracks. Foster takes you aside and says, I don't think I hear, like, a good rock single. And he says, how right. do you feel about working with Lukather? And you're like, fine. So the next day, I guess... 
everyone's not scheduled to come in until later in the afternoon, but you and Luke get together that morning and knock out, right. talk to and you later. Foster. And Foster. Right. And Foster. And yeah, and Luke, I mean, uh, we've been friends for years. I didn't really know him at the time, but we ended up being at the same management company in a, in a, in a year later or something. But I didn't, you know, Luke was a... Uh, was kind of the, the, the go-to session guy in L.A. at the time. He was the guy. He was the guitar player, lead sure. guitar player guy that Foster had used a number of times, as well as as were a lot of the other guys, David Page and and Jeff Picaro and the, all those yeah, guys. Yeah, Jake Radin. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, they were well-known in L.A. studio world. And, of course, we, you know, we never, I never heard of him at that point, you know, because we are all from San Francisco and mm-hmm. and weren't really aware of the L.A. studio world. But we met at this a little studio out in, in Panorama City, which is mm-hmm. out in the valley. And we met, at, like like you, said, I, like you were saying, that band, we were scheduled to come. We had been working there, recording the record, and been doing like four to midnight or something, mm-hmm. you know, eight-hour mm-hmm. days at four to midnight. And so Luke and I and Foz met at like 10 in the morning, and, you know, we needed, we didn't really have like a really hard rock kind of song at that point on the record. So we met, and I mean, Luke is amazing. Yeah, he's an incredible yes. songwriter. And uh, he came up with that lick in about five minutes. That's crazy. Uh, for this. Yeah, just amazing. And Foz, Foster immediately went, oh, okay, I like that. Let's do that. And <laughs> But you have and, to write and words, I, and you don't, and you're waiting for something to happen. And you call upon Umberto, I guess, right? The yeah, engineer? Umberto, Umberto used to say, uh, and, and I don't usually write lyrics like that. I don't yeah. go to a session and write lyrics, especially when I do with like with Richard. You know, Richard sends mm-hmm. me a track, and I sit with it and I listen to it a thousand times <laughs> and try to figure out, you know, kind of let the muse come over me and tell me what I'm supposed to be writing. And but I was, you know, I was expected to come up with lyrics, you know, mm-hmm. in, during the session. But Umberto used to say talk to you later all the time and it was in response to questions we you know the band would we had never worked with anybody like Foz and or or Umberto and they were so good and so fast and they had so many new kind of you know studio effects recording effects Mm -hmm. that we had really not worked with before with Todd Rundgren he wasn't really in much of an effects guy Mm -hmm. you know we were constantly asking Umberto, oh, what does that do? Right. Well, what's that? You know, what is that? How do you use that? Well, what am I, what are you going to, what does it sound like? You know, uh-huh. and uh, instead, and Umberto was a nice guy and he was trying to be nice and instead of saying, you know, shut the fuck up, <laughs> you know, like, don't ask me questions, I'm working, you know, uh-huh. he uh-huh. would say, uh, I'll talk to you later. <laughs> yeah, all right, I'll talk to you later. And in other words, I'm busy, you know, uh-huh. don't bother me. So, so I just what... grasped onto that title line because it kind of fit the parameters of the melody that mm-hmm. we had going. Mm-hmm. That's great. It was, and, you and know, it... and I just, I don't know where it came from. I just sat there and we were in LA and we were going to the Sunset Strip, you know, we yeah. were living in LA of course. and going to the Strip and going to the Rainbow and hanging out and, you know, 
we had played the Roxy Theater uh, a couple of years before that on the Sunset Strip, so I kind of just started with that. And, yeah, and it's, uh, it's amazing to me that a song as enduring as that is knocked out in a few minutes, you know, in a morning. That and yeah, and that and yet it lasts forever. And my understanding is that um, the rest of the band, and I think you mentioned this when we talked before, the rest of the band was a little miffed that you and Luke had kind of been and Foz had been off doing your own thing without them and knocked out this yeah. song. Yeah, they were. They yeah. were. They were not thrilled. I have to say, but uh, you know, they couldn't deny that that it was a great song. And yeah, we had. I mean, by. Gosh, we started at ten, and probably by by two o'clock, we had the track. And Luke, you know, Luke played all the guitar. He played the bass. Mm. Foz played the keyboards. I sang all the vocals. I sang the background vocals. I think I mm -hmm. can't remember. And then I think we called. We actually called Prairie in. We called him up on the phone and and got him down there before at like two o'clock before uh -huh. the rest of the band. Prairie came in and recorded the drums. And then they all showed up at like four o'clock and we had this whole track to play to them. Yeah. And I think I probably did a, a guide vocal, a rough vocal or something, and then at a later date went back and did the, the final. Wow. Uh, all right. But yeah, and, and I was so convinced that that had to be the first single. I mean, I, yeah. in fact, that night, uh, we, we were managed by a guy at the time, a, a, a guy named Ricky Farr, and he was a, uh, a Welshman who, who had a sound and lights company in L.A., and that was his business. And he had never managed a band before, but <laughs> he loved us. And, and we did some gigs where his company was doing the sound and lights. And that night, you know, we went ahead and did the, we went ahead and did the four to midnight session, mm -hmm. you know, with the other stuff we were working on, the other tracks, you know, overdubs and stuff. Sure. And uh, at about 12 or one o'clock at night, I went, uh, I was staying at his house. He lived in, he lived in Toluca Lake, which <laughs> in, in this famous house that Red Fox used to Ooh, live in. really? Uh, <laughs> ranch style house in Toluca Lake, yeah. And and Ricky and he had he had three kids, and uh, and his wife, and I I came in at like one o'clock one thirty in the morning, and woke everybody up, and said <laughs> you have to hear it. you have to and I had a cassette of the rough, and I I put it on the cassette player, and I said Ricky this is this is a, this is a hit I know that I I can hear it I uh -huh. know it. Uh -huh. and, I, and I played him the tune and, and he was you know he went oh my god he loved it <laughs> yeah. and then we thought for sure that the record company no would, kidding would release it as the first single and they didn't no you know, they wanted to release don't want to wait anymore because of the popularity of power ballads yeah I was confused I think that too yeah I couldn't believe it I, and yeah. especially with our reputation I exactly thought, oh god, you know, yeah and, exactly. and then, uh, and I think Don't Want to Wait Anymore went to, I can't even remember. But 35, I believe. 35, something yeah. like that. Yeah, it wasn't a huge hit. And Talk but to You talk Later. Talk to You Later went to number one on the, on the rock track, right. a rock chart. Yeah. And it was number one. At, I, at one point, someone told me from the record company, it was number one on 17 countries or something. Mm -hmm. It was just, it did really well in Europe. And so, Yeah. You know, Weird. 
you don't uh, I mean you don't announce a rock band with a ballad even the hair metal bands of the 80s knew that it was always the rock single first and then you followed that up with a ballad to kind of loop in the ladies and stuff like that it it was an odd strategy yeah. for you guys okay I know well and the capital had quite a few odd strategies yeah I could see that I could see that all right number two sushi sushi girl I'm, I'm going to sit back and I'm going to let you tell the story of Sushi Girl. I'm going to I'm going to listen. I'm going to let you take the reins on this one. Tell us what you're going <laughs> well, for. Well, actually, I mean, sushi was kind of a new thing back then in the mm -hmm. 80s. There were, you know, we knew about it because we had gone to Japan, and uh, in '79 we went to Japan and and did a tour of Japan. And so we knew all about it, and we were huge fans of sushi. And actually, Prairie wrote the lyrics to that. I didn't write it. Prairie really? Guitar drum. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, he wrote, he wrote the lyrics to Sushi Girl. We, I, you know, like I said, it was the year before, and we were just so impressed. We had such a great time in Japan. And, you know, we, we had sushi, and we had, we had just a one we played all over the place and mm -hmm. you know went to tokyo mm -hmm. and kyoto and and just had a great great time so we wanted to write something about it we wanted to kind of write a tribute to mm -hmm. japan and and our and our, the great time that we had there it's funny because we've we never went back that oh really one, <laughs> we've never been back yeah we went there one time had such a great time the problem was there was two big promoters in Japan at the time and the number one guy was called Mr. Udo and he was the guy he was the Bill Graham of yes. Japan yeah. and everybody went to, and you know he everybody went with Mr. Udo uh -huh. and promoted uh -huh. he promoted everyone who went there except for us and we went with the other guy mm -hmm. and I can't even remember his name it was called something Universal Orient or some other okay. promotion company that wasn't Mr. Udo. So, you know, yeah. we screwed ourselves by not going with the, the main guy right. and then ended up never going back. But that was, Sushi Girl was all about okay. uh, our impression of Japan and, uh, and but we it's, used to have a... It's not a, like, ahead. it's not a dirty double entendre. I mean, this isn't really a song about sushi eating sushi and asian women this is that's there's more to it than that right the joke i mean it's the 
there's a whole subtext going on here, or are we completely misreading that? No, no, I think you're right. Okay, okay. You know, the odor drives you crazy, it goes straight to your prawn. These are just all, you know, I mean, we... Uh, it's definitely okay. all double entendre, okay. exactly. Okay. That's exactly okay. right. That's what okay. Perry wrote. Okay, okay, I that just want to make sure. To your prawn. <laughs> it was great live because we, we made a big octopus suit that... <laughs> One of the dancers, we had we had three girl dancers at the time on that uh -huh. tour, complete backward tour. Cynthia Rhodes was mm -hmm. uh, Richard's wife. Cynthia Rhodes, before they were married, was one of our dancers. And mm -hmm. the other one, Cheryl Hanglin, she wore the... Uh, and we had an Asian girl, actually, also, as one of the dancers. And... Uh, Shelly, her name was Shelly, okay, okay. and she wore the octopus suit and had a big like kimono and a geisha girl wig, you know, a giant uh -huh. wig, geisha girl wig, you know. And I did some. I can imagine. I can imagine. Dopey. Right. I came out with like with like swim fins <laughs> and a swimming suit and got and you know a, a snorkel. Uh -huh. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it was really it was it was a great it was a great uh, physical presentation I believe it, it. if any cool. band could pull off something like that it would be the tubes at that time for yeah, a song like great. Sushi Girl yeah, yeah. it was a great a great visual I believe for it. a live show okay I believe it I think when I saw when I saw you I've seen you four times now they've all been in the last like 10 years or so and one of them, oh. the first two were at the Soil Dove Underground here in Denver, which is a really beautiful, oh, kind of yeah. intimate dinner theater type place. And uh, you, I remember you coming out with like, it was almost like a creature from the Black Lagoon mask on or something like that. Yeah, I used to wear that. I remember that. Yeah. I used to change it up. You know, every tour I try to change it and not do the same thing as the last tour. So. Yeah. But I do yeah. remember I did have a creature from the Black Lagoon mask. Yeah. That's, I, that was that's my favorite. That was my favorite horror movie. Yeah. Creature from the Black Lagoon. What song it's, did you play while you were wearing that mask? I can't remember. Creature from I must have been sushi. Yeah, that's what I want. That's why. I'm, okay, that's what I. That's why. Yeah, I yeah. I thought. So. What what, okay. what other song would? I don't know. Creature. That's why I mentioned it. I thought that <laughs> yeah. might be it. Okay. It had to be that. It yeah. had to be. Okay. It had to be. Uh, okay. To be. Well, we've uh, we've established the story behind Sushi Girl. That's a that's a classic song. All right. Track three is Amnesia. I think this is maybe my favorite song on the album.
the reason being is I could listen to what comes after those breakdowns, you know, with the the very funky bass and those guitar licks, yeah. those chiming guitar licks. Yeah. Praise. I could listen to that on a loop for hours by itself. That is one of, yeah. I love that. And uh, yes, yeah. there are some people out there who think this song sounds more like Chicago. Maybe it does, but we'll get, I want to get more into that when we talk deeper about Don't Want to Wait Anymore, because that is obviously something that's Foster's bringing to the table. But I love Amnesia. What's the story here? Yeah. Uh, amnesia, Amnesia, and, and that song, you know, that was like, that it it, it never really had like any kind of a visual that went to it. And mm -hmm. I, I always refused to try to bastardize that song when we were playing it live because that is also one of my top three probably favorite songs to sing. Really? And, uh, yeah, it's. I mean, I just love that song, and yeah. the and the and the dueling guitar licks mm -hmm. are so great. And then the O's, mm -hmm. and lately we've been doing it, and I get the whole audience to sing along. Oh, 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 and everybody sings, and oh my God, I mean that was you know it's another love song you know mm -hmm. that I wrote the lyrics, and Roger and and Bill were music writers on that song, and that was another one. That was the song that really David Foster helped to shape mm -hmm. because that song, originally that song didn't have those O's in it. Foster put that in there mm -hmm. and, and kind of rearranged the ending of the song and mm -hmm. He might have a songwriter credit on he that. He does. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Yep, he does. It's the whole rest oh, of the band and yeah. him. Yeah. I, I mean, that's that song is just so good. It's it just, is. It's funny. It's one of those songs where, you know, every every time we get ready to go out and, and do uh, a new show, mm -hmm. that song has been like in the last 10 shows that we've really? done. It's got, it gets such a good response from people that, you know, we have to play it. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's like you have to play What Do You Want From Life and you have to play White Punks on Dope and you have to play, you know, whatever, She's talk to you later. She's yeah. a beauty yeah, right. at every show, regardless of what the other, you know, peripheral songs are. Mm -hmm. But Amnesia kind of became, you know, one of those songs where, yeah. my God, you got to, you, you have to play Amnesia. You're yeah. not, you just... There's no getting around it. Whose idea uh, was it to include those breakdowns? You know, when it can't break the spell and then it stops, it's almost like a Bob Clearmountain move to put in those big pregnant pauses right there. Stops and then it yeah, comes back well, with that funky bass yeah. and everything. Who Whose idea? Was that Foster that's like, you know what we need right probably, here, guys? Okay. Well, probably. I, I don't actually remember whose idea it was, but I... It was probably Foster. Okay. I mean, that's those are the kind of arrangement ideas that, you know, that made that record happen. It just, yeah. he was brilliant, you know. Yeah. He, okay. The guy was a brilliant, he's still brilliant. He is, he is. I watched the uh, documentary on him that's on Netflix right now, and you guys don't oh, get brought up, but I've noticed it focuses mostly on his adult contemporary stuff anyway. But oh, it's yeah, we're not in it. I, no. some, Somebody told me that there was a, a documentary about it, but it, I, I haven't seen it yet. I didn't know that we weren't. No, we it, weren't part of it. I don't know why. She's a Beauty was, you know, I our know. biggest song ever that he produced, and 
Well, other than Chicago, it really only gets into like Celine Dion and not only, but it focuses on Celine and Buble and Josh Groban and Whitney. It's really more the adult contemporary stuff. Yeah. They don't even talk much about airplay on there. You know, his, uh, the band. Oh, really? Right the band, his, his own band. Mm-hmm. Not much. Yeah. Yeah. It's other stuff. You deserve to be in there. Yeah, yeah. I agree. <laughs> um, okay. Track four is Mr. Hate. What's the, is this, I, I mean, are you, you're assuming a character here, it sounds like, you know, I, uh, don't do drugs, I, I uh, don't smoke pot, I'm a Christian, I believe, but what are you really saying with Mr. Hate? Well, Mr. Hate is a true story. It's not about, oh. that was a real guy. Mr. Hate was a guy that was accused of killing his mother and sister. Okay, in San Francisco, right around that same time. Hmm. And he was a fugitive, and they were trying to find him, and he started writing letters to the San Francisco Chronicle, professing his innocence. And a lot of those lines came straight from his letters. No way. Yeah. A lot of those lines came straight from his letters. My copy of... uh... The CD does not include lyrics, so I had to Google some of them. He said, my sister's dead, my mom is too. So yeah, he was accused of killing his mother, and we took his, those, we took those letters, like nothing's real, nothing's certain. Everybody's trying to convict me for taking Benzedrine, and we, we took all of it, we took his notes, his letters, and, and I turned them into a song, and we kind of rearranged them to make it rhyme uh-huh. but uh, uh-huh. he had everybody believing that he was innocent and he was unjustly accused and the police were looking he was a fugitive and he was a, they, he outsmarted the cops for quite a long time yeah and everybody was like paying attention you know you he wrote all these letters and every day in the paper there'd be another letter from mr. hate and <laughs> and so we you know we we jumped on it and I That's wrote wild. the lyric used a lot of his words from his letters and yeah. uh okay i hate rock so and roll don't of, smoke pot maybe a drunk but a user i'm not yeah and that, it's just I mean, between that's god and me him. okay crazy 
Yeah, okay. that was him, and we we turned it into a character, which I really uh, you probably we, we we couldn't do we couldn't do that character now. Well, I mean, I still sing the song, but in the old show, I wore a ski mask, oh. and I would have a, like a knife, and I would like capture one of the dancing girls and hold a knife to her throat, and you know, and sing the song. Yeah. And I mean, I fucking couldn't get away with that today. Right, no would would just crucify you, you yeah, know. Yeah. But and and she would break away during the song. She would break away and she, you know, run around the stage, and I'd be following her. And I would climb up one of the towers, and because the towers were all scaffolding, right? Uh-huh. And I would climb up from the inside of the tower, and she would pull a gun out and shoot me with the gun. Oh. And we had like a, a blank gun, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and she would shoot me with the blank gun, and I would fall over the edge of the... the one of the towers had a window in it where I, I'd come up in the window of the tower and she'd see me up there and shoot me. And I had a like a bag of blood underneath <laughs> my shirt, and I'd slap the blood, and blood would go everywhere, and I'd turn around and fall and hang upside down with blood dripping all over me Genius. and uh oh it was a great i love that song it's a great song to sing and i still you know i still kind of i don't know i actually i would smoke a cigarette during the, sh- the song a lot of times i mean i used to do it all the time but now you can't get away with smoking cigarettes much anymore and i would do i would do the song like kind of a, a hard-ass you know, ex-con kind of guy. I don't know, but I love to sing the song. And it, and the way the way it is on the record, how it, at the end of the song, how it goes back into amnesia. Yes. At the yes. End. And we always do them back to back. You know, we always oh. do them. Oh. And uh, it kind of rocks. Is Roger playing all the guitars on this one, or does Lukather come back for anything else on this album? Or no, no. Just- Okay. No, look at there's not on any other song other than Talk to You Later. Roger, okay. this is all Bill and Roger. Okay. Yeah, they both rock on Bill, this. We had we killer. had, you know, Bill Bill Spooner and Roger, we had two lead guitar players and they're they kind of trade off on this song. Okay. Okay. I wondered. Yeah. Great. Good. It's classic. Um okay, next up, Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman. This, I think, is a really interesting bass showcase for Rick. 
his bass gets really rubbery in this song and it's a really nice uh -huh. moment for him there's some um you know most of the songs the rest of the album remind me of other artists and i'll bounce them off you this one a little bit sonically sound reminds me somewhat of steely dan especially in like the, yeah, uh, the keyboard parts other people have said that too other people oh, really? have said yeah okay yeah uh and and you know that was a movie and Attack of the 50-Foot Woman was another 50s, you know, sci-fi movie, which we thought was great. And uh, we used to have a, a giant leg that was, you know, like a backdrop that was just a big leg, one big leg. Mm -hmm. And it was like 30 feet tall. And it was just from the foot to the like mid thigh. But uh, yeah, that was just depicting the, the story of the movie. Mm. Okay. It was a date with my girlfriend Sue, and so usually that song is is a uh, and that, that's another song that I kind of you know go into another character. I kind of act like the you know the high school kid who is bewildered and and can't understand what happened to his girlfriend. You mm -hmm. know, you know that it's strictly taken. Prairie wrote part of the lyrics to that one also. Oh. Uh, and we used to you know. We we uh, I think he still has the poster in his studio. It has a big poster, original poster from okay. the, from the movie Attack of the Fifty Foot Woman. Was it but like I mean, a, it did it make a big impression on him or you guys or what? I mean, like why why oh, yeah. that movie? Okay, oh, yeah. okay. I I love that movie. Yeah, I mean we we used to be, you know, we all grew up in Arizona. And so everybody was very TV oriented and, you know, cause it was so hot there that, yeah. you know, you just watch TV all the time. Right. And when those, yeah. when those old sci-fi movies, you know, them and, uh, -huh. uh Classic. ants and uh -huh. all those movies from kind of the fifties, fifties sci-fi movies were a big deal to us. Like creature from the black lagoon. I mean, yeah. all, I mean, all, they were just, they were very influential, and yeah. so we call on that. You know, we go back to, you know, we we we. Uh, actually, I have that. I have that movie on an ancient VHS. Do you really? <laughs> back at the Fifty Foot Woman. Yeah, nice. I took. I taped it off the, off the. Uh, I mean, it's not a DVD or anything. I yeah. think I taped it off TV. So no way. I don't know. I don't think I've seen it. I think yeah. they remade it with Daryl Hannah or something in the '90s, maybe. And I maybe I saw yeah. that. I don't remember. I'll have to go back and look at it. I okay. I don't know. It, okay. It, it's not as good as the original. Yeah, I believe, it. I believe it. So then, next up, we're on side two, and it's "Think About Me." And like I said, there's kind of a theme with the rest of the songs. A lot of them sounding like other bands. This is your Devo song.
the song, you know, it's very synthy. Prairie sounds great on the drums on this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can hear, I hear what you're saying there. Yeah, very quirky and up-tempo uh-huh. and choppy. This, that was a song that Mike Cotton mm. came up with. And he wrote most of the lyrics to that song. Oh, too, did he? Okay. Yeah. And, and that was another one. I mean, we never did that very much live. We never really did that song very much live. But I remember when I was singing, when I was doing the track, when we was recording it, I loved to sing it. I, for some reason, I just, I, I really, I, just the, the urgency of singing mm-hmm. that song mm-hmm. uh, was was exciting for me. Yeah. I, I, you know, Mike wrote, Mike wrote a few songs. Uh, a very, I mean, he, he didn't write very many songs, but when he would come up with a good idea like that, you know, we really tried to to uh, emphasize it. Okay. And, okay. Uh, he was the last guy to join the band. Mike was, oh, and he really? wasn't really a player. He wasn't really a musician. He just joined the band by virtue of having this strange machine that he, this synthesizer was called an ARP, an ARP. <laughs> ARP 2600 okay. and it was a big bank of like uh, electronics we we had no idea what the hell it did uh-huh. and and you just it had wires stuck you know uh, envelopes and wires and everything connected this way and that way and and he really didn't know how to play keyboards at all but but he knew how to work this machine yeah, he could make this machine do the weirdest noises and strange. Oh my God! It was it, we were just completely stunned by the thing. So he got in the band because okay. he had a great thing, and okay. we didn't even know what it was. But Wild. He, he he could play it, and we we loved it. So my understanding. Think oh, about me was one of the first songs that 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 he really pretty much created all really? by himself. It sounds like a song created by somebody who would play around with synthesizers because it's so heavy in there. Yeah. Um, one th- I, in reading about it, I don't think you guys played this until you started doing those whole album concerts last year. And I was curious, or if you did, it was very sporadic. And I'm curious, when you're very, creating yeah. an album like this, do you are you aware while you're, you know, it's it's all done, you're in Foster's studio, you're listening to the final product. Are you thinking to yourself, I don't know if we're going to play Think About Me very often, if ever. You know, like, are you aware of the fate of these songs in the moment? No, or does it just I don't work think out so. That way? No. Okay. no, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. I think when we first went out and did the Completion Backward Principle tour, we did, I, I know we didn't do it all in order like we did yeah. this last year, but we did We did Think About Me back in that, in the, okay. in the 81 I tour. I, I wonder that we did. did. Okay. And, it never really had a uh, visual mm-hmm. attached to it in any way, you know. Mm-hmm. And 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 I think after that tour, we probably didn't do it again for twenty years. Okay. You know? Yeah. We didn't, but but until we got until last year when we did the whole thing in order. Yeah. Okay. I wondered. Um, okay. Next up is Matter of Pride. Now this one, I love this tune.
And this, to me, sounds like an obvious single. Like it was obviously made to be played on the radio, and yet I don't think it was. I think this album still just no. has the two singles. No, it was never a single. It was never a single. Uh, this uh, Think About Me was Roger Steen. He wrote the whole song. You mean Matter of Pride? Lyric, everything. He wrote it all. Okay. Yeah, it was just okay. a song, one of his songs. It was really not a collaboration with anybody else mm. that I know of, and it was just Roger. Roger and Bill kind of would sometimes write, especially in, in the early days, Bill would write a lot of the material all by himself. Mm -hmm. And it was, and it, you know, I didn't st really start writing lyrics until, gosh, I don't know, man. I didn't, I don't think I wrote any lyrics till about the third album. Oh, really? Uh, oh. And it was all Roger and, and Bill. And they pretty much had all the songwriting okay. credits up until about the third album, the uh, Tubes Now album. Uh -huh. But this was a song that Roger wrote completely by himself. And it was really high, and man, I was, I had, you know, that was, that was another song that, you know, we hadn't done very often because it was so high. And it didn't have, uh, it didn't really have a visual connected to it either or any kind of a obvious bent, you know. It was mm -hmm. just a, it was a Rogers song. Kind of a one-off. It didn't have a lot of going on other than the, the expertise of the playing, you yeah. know. And it was really yeah. high, and we ended up, for a while, we stopped doing it because it was so high, and, uh -huh. and we would never lower the key. That was we were like religious about not lowering lowering mm -hmm. the key, and everybody does it, you know. Mm -hmm. But we wouldn't do it, you know. We were Good too pure. Nice. <laughs> but then last year, when we did, when we were going to do the record, the 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 completion backward principle in, in its entirety. I just said, okay, well, if we're doing, I don't care. If we're doing Matter of Pride, we got to lower this half step. <laughs> right. I, right. I don't care. You know? yeah. Forget about the purity. I This is going to kill me. You yeah. Know? yeah. Just, I believe it. And, yeah. I, and I have to say, you know, my voice has really held up. It has. Uh, over the years. It really has held up. I used to do uh, acupuncture uh, oh, yeah. on the road when we would, when we would, work you know i would strain my voice and i mean i saw some old itineraries i'm i'm working on a, a my wife and i are, work, are doing a book oh know, nice great fee waybills yes uh, fee, fee way the life of fee way this is just what the world needs and, uh, yes <laughs> yeah and yeah. uh we were looking at old itineraries and and you know because my mother kept everything she kept every review every magazine every newspaper clipping everything we, she had boxes full of old stuff uh -huh. and when when she died that was oh four i went to arizona and i brought back all these boxes and boxes of shit and it's just you know sitting around for 10 years and finally we started going through them and putting together this book and I find I found itineraries that I couldn't believe. Mm -hmm. You know, we did like ten in a row, different wow. nights, ten different ten cities in a row. Yeah. And I just, I mean, how I, how could you ever do ten in a row? <laughs> no idea. You know? I have no Today, idea. Today, I, I, I freak out if I have to do three in a row right. or four in a row. <laughs> I mean, I'm not doing any in a row right now, yeah. obviously. But I would go to acupuncture. I would if my voice started to fade, I would go i would find a asian mm -hmm. had to be an asian of course and 
I would go to the day of the gig. I'd get up in the morning and I'd find somebody. And you know, about 10 or 11 o'clock, I'd go to an acupuncture guy and tell him what my deal was. And and they would stick needles right in my throat. You know, right right into your vocal cords. They'd stick a needle. Right. And then all of these other uh, related kind of spots around your bo- body mm-hmm. where your where your channels are. They would stick needles in me, and I'd be like lay there like a pin cushion for about an hour or so uh-huh. and it worked every yeah. time it was incredible it yeah. worked and it worked and it worked and i would walk out of there singing like a bird i just i couldn't believe it i can't tell you how many times i did it and that's amazing it always worked. yeah that's amazing well that song is great yeah. it's uh, got some great uh, i really love the jangly guitar riff in it there's some funky bass in there too i am curious one thing yeah. that really strikes me in the song is there's fantastic backing vocals and I think that's a hallmark, especially of kind of Foster at this time. Oh, is he bringing other yeah. people in to sing background, or is it all you guys? No, it's all, it's all us. Is it? Well, you guys it's, sound it, amazing. It, it's Roger and most of the time, most of the, all of the background vocals are Roger and Bill and Vince. Okay. You know? Yeah. Roger would sing the low part, Bill sang the middle part, Vince sang the high part. So good. Yeah, that's all so us. Good. Especially it's, on that Foster song. Was it Foster was so meticulous, so much different than Todd Rundgren. I mean, Todd would like build this wall of background vocals. Mm-hmm. He would, he would, he would have like nine parts or nine singers. You know, like mm-hmm. three guys would do the bass part, three guys middle part, three guys the top part, and sometimes you know it kind of turned into mush. Yeah. You know, it kind of <laughs> got kind of sloppy sounding and right. if somebody sang one wrong note you know he, he didn't really worry about it and yeah. it kind of all got mushed and whereas Foster it we sang it there was three parts mm-hmm. there was and every part had to be perfect yeah. every part but I not one bone, bonehead note not one bad note on any part on any part of the song and you know this was you know, back then this was analog. You you had to you had you couldn't fix it. No, you the had to hit it. Yeah, that's right. Pitch. You couldn't yeah. fix a bad note. You couldn't fix the time. You had to do it right. You couldn't fly in notes here and there. You know, because when Richard and I work, you know, we comp stuff, and you mm-hmm. know, I'll sing it ten times, and then we'll go through and 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 compile all the most perfect words and notes together to make an entire track you know mm-hmm. and you you couldn't do that back then i mean that was not available okay. to you no but you guys nailed it on that one um okay yeah, they were, they, they were, that was a great song it is and that's still a good people love that song and i was going to say dave we didn't play it for years because it was really high and that was one of the, the keyboard player in the band, Dave would always go, let's do Men Are Pride. Now, Dave, shut the fuck up, okay? It's too far. We're not doing it. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, you go sing but, it, Dave. You don't know what you don't yeah. know what it's like, you know? Really? Yeah, okay. All right, don't want to wait anymore. We could be the last two on earth to start a new world. You and me, girl, try And you can almost see How it 
So, okay, let me back up here a second. So when you watch the Foster documentary, this is a slight tangent, but I'll bring it back. He, in the Chicago section, he talks about how he was brought in and he wanted to make the Chicago album that he heard in his head. But what was interesting when I, I had, I don't know if I'd ever thought of it really before, but there's hard, there's not a lot of horns on those songs, those ballads, especially that became so big. So you, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, how could you possibly and there's tons of horns on the airplay album so i'm thinking how could you how do you not hear horns when you listen to chicago and i really wonder, when they have three horn players exactly but there's hardly any horns on that chicago 17 album that was so huge and so i think well is he really hearing a chicago album or is he hearing what he wants and he's applying it to chicago and that's why i wonder if when if in his mind he has this ballad that he believes in and he just wants to give it to you or do you think he thinks the tubes are the right band to perform this song i believe it does that make sense well yeah i know what you're saying but that will that's not how it went down i mean vince okay. wrote vince had that song okay and they were i mean they like i said they were looking for a ballad and david knew they were looking for a ballad and the, the record company and uh and he said that he said, you know, we need to come up with a ballad for, for that. Uh, that's what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And Vince had he he Vince wrote that song, and Vince okay. had it already. Okay. And he Vince sat down and said, well, what about this? And he started playing the tune, and Foz just went, oh my God, that's it, that's it. Yeah. And he, I think he's got actually writer's credit on that one too because he he, he put in the modulation. Uh, he added that modulation uh, in the in the at the end of the song. Okay. You know, with that with that breakdown, and mm-hmm. then come back with the with the modulation to a higher key. I mean, you know, and then I wrote the lyrics to that song, okay. and it was. Uh, this is a good story with this song. I wrote the lyrics, and I loved that song. That was my favorite song. I thought at the time, mm-hmm. I thought these are the greatest lyrics I ever wrote. And it's so poignant and so, you know, truthful and so, uh, you know, it just like came from my gut. It came yeah. from my soul. Yeah. And so I sang the book. We went in and recorded it. Mm-hmm. And, and Foz, like I said, he, arra- he, he changed the arrangement and put in the modulation and stuff. And, and we recorded it and, you know, the great guitar parts. And it was so great. And I sang it. 
and we had moved on to I think it was kind of near the end of the recording of the record and in the past most of the most all of the tubes albums Bill would sing a song uh-huh one, you know one or two songs and Bill was kind of you know when when we kind of all started when we all got together Bill was kind of the founder of the tubes oh. and the tubes were the tubes were two bands that merged together Bill had a band called the Beans from Arizona and our band was Roger's band Roger and Prairie and a drummer and a bass player named David had moved to San Francisco in 1969 because Prairie got a scholarship to the San Francisco Art Institute uh-huh. so we led the charge and this was when I was a roadie you probably heard that story uh-huh. I started as the roadie for Roger's band and Roger and Prairie and David and I and this guy named John Spear who was the manager kind of guy was just another high school kid you know basically <laughs> we moved to san francisco and we the rogers band was called the red white and blues band and they were we were playing around san francisco uh, and prairie was going to art school and rogers band was a pretty big deal in phoenix you know a club mm-hmm. band mm-hmm. they were very popular and so every once in a while we would go back to you know every once in a while when we ran out of money we'd go back to mm-hmm. phoenix and do a gig and you know and so we had a big following back there, and a lot of people. And we would and we would see Bill's Bill's band lived in Phoenix also, and we would see them and go, man, you got to come to California, man. Phoenix sucks, and mm-hmm. there's no music here, and you're never going to make it in Phoenix, and you got to move to San Francisco. And so Bill's band, a couple of years later, at, at behind us, moved to San Francisco, and then in 1971, I think. Uh, Bill's band had just moved there, and Rogers Roger fired their bass player. He was he was just a, a dumb shit. Okay. Uh, I don't want to be bad about Dave though. Right. Dave was a great singer. He was the lead singer of Roger's band. Okay. David Killingsworth, his name was, and he, you know, but he was constantly getting in trouble, and he never showed up for practice, and he smoked hash all day long, and so they ended up firing him, and then. In, they tried to find another bass player to continue the trio, and they, you know, auditioned a whole bunch of guys. They put an ad in the Hate Ashbury Free Press: bass player needed. And the guys would they would come out to our house in in the Sunset District of San Francisco, and a bass player, they would audition, and they were just you know mm-hmm. nobody was good enough. Roger and Prairie were doing original material way back then. They weren't playing. There wasn't a oh, cover band. Interesting. They did okay. all original material, okay. and the bass. They couldn't find a bass player, and they just couldn't find it. And they couldn't find it. And they couldn't find it. And finally, the two managers, Bill's manager was a guy named Lauren Thompson, and our manager John Spear were very close friends, and they they said, well, why don't we join your band? You know, in other mm-hmm. words, Roger and Prairie mm-hmm. joined Bill's band, and Bill's band was a quartet: bass, drums, uh, Bill guitar, bass, drums, keyboard. And why don't we join your band? And R- Roger said, "Well, okay." And they finally gave up trying to find a bass player. So Roger and Prairie were going to join Bill's band, The Beans, and I was like, you know, odd man out. Uh-huh. They already had three roadies. <laughs> And Roger said, well, why don't you let him, let him sing background? He's a good singer. 
because I used to when 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 we were trying to find the bass player, they still wanted to practice, so I would go down and sing with them. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so he knew I was a good singer, so he said, "Let this, let him sing background vocals." So the three of us joined Bill's band, Roger and Prairie and I, and Bill the leader of the band and wrote all the material and they had a whole bunch of of original material also they didn't do covers either and and so we kind of joined their band and the, in the beginning bill would do the their band would do uh, a 30 minute set and then they'd bring us out hmm. and me and Roger and Prairie and we were we usually come out dressed as spacemen we were the radar men the radar men from Uranus. <laughs> of course, you were. <laughs> we would come out. We would come out dressed as spacemen with like mylar and and tinfoil tentacles, tinfoil helmets. Uh huh. Bill had like a. You saw Spinal Tap, right? Sure, of course. The movie. Well, and when they would do the space overture song, uh-huh. remember they would do uh-huh. this space. Audit, I can't remember what they called it in the movie. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, Bill either. had a, a space oddity, a space overture. It was called the Ascension of the Motherlode, <laughs> and we would come out as the spacemen and play this one song that they they had taught them, and it was like a twenty-minute piece, the Ascension of the Motherlode, and you know, our one of the songs was called Our Lord Is a Hot Dog, <laughs> and <laughs> and we would come out and do this. But for years and years, Bill was the leader of the band, and Bill wrote all the songs. And finally, they, you know, they kept telling me I sang to, as a background singer. I sang too loud, and so mm-hmm. they finally let me be sing a few songs and be the front man. And we kind of started as a theatrical band, and I used to go out in the front and do these weird characters. I'd do a cowboy, or a, we did Carmen Miranda, and we would do Brazil. The song Brazil, uh-huh. I would sing in Portuguese, and we did all these wacky characters and that kind of how. Because I was a theater major in, in high school, and I I acted my whole life. And, of course. Uh, so we I would do all these wacky characters, and that kind of got us started in the whole theatrical bent of the tubes. But anyway, getting back to why I started, Bill, uh, you know, I kind of usurped Bill mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as the leader of the band because I was the front man, and right. even though. You know, I was portray- I was perceived as the leader of the band, but really it was a seven-man band, sure. and everybody we were all hippies, and we split everything seven ways. Good. There was no leader. I mean, Bill was the founder, but we all, everybody had their two cents to share in any decision that we made. So I kind of usurped him, and we kind of have always had this kind of, underlying feud between us you know he was also he was he was always kind of not really resentful but really kind of he sure. always kind of questioned what I was doing and questioned the fact that everybody thought I was the front man and I was the leader and you know and of he kind of I don't want to say he resented it but it it was it was always a thorn in his side let's I say can that. See that okay yeah. so anyway all through all those years, in the five or six records that we made with Capitol, I mean with A&M, before we went to Capitol, Bill would always sing a song, like Remote Control, mm-hmm. you know, the last record on, Cap- on A&M we did, 
Bill sang Only the Strong Survive. Mm -hmm. So when we got, we were almost done with the record with Foz, and Bill's, Bill hadn't sung a song on the record. Uh, he had sung a song. Okay. So one night, we, I wasn't there. David and Umberto were in a studio. They were, they were all by themselves. There was nobody else, just David and, and Umberto, and they were doing combinations. I mean, back then you had to like, you know, you have you had slaves. Mm -hmm. You know, you had a, you only had 24 tracks on it on a on a reel, so you had slave reels where you would you would record the drums on 12 or 15 tracks, and that was your slave. And then when you got ready to make the all you had was you had to combine everything to 24 tracks. Right. And so they would have to then, they would have to like mix down the drum slave into just two tracks mm -hmm. because you couldn't you didn't have room for more than two tracks on the final final, you know what I mean? Right, right. And so they were in the studio doing that mixing slaves or something. I don't know what the hell they were doing. And it was in L.A. We were still in L.A. And Bill comes into the studio one, you know, like midnight. And they're in there working, and he is just shit-faced. Mm -hmm. He's just drunk out of his mind and gone. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, comes in there, and, he, and, he's, and he says, Man, I didn't, you know, I, I, I haven't got to sing a song on the record. <laughs> you know, I, I want to sing a song on the record. You know, I always get to sing one, and uh, there's, no, there's nothing for me to do. And, uh, you know, he was... He gave him a sad sob story about how he wanted to sing a song, and so they said, "Well, okay, you know." Mm -hmm. They kind of just, "Yeah, okay, go ahead." And thinking, you know, just let him just right. It would be easier to just but let him be done and leave, mm -hmm. okay? Right. And so he said, "I want to sing. Don't want to wait anymore." And they and they went, "Oh well, you know, if he already sang that, that's his baby." You know? <laughs> he goes, "I don't care. I want to sing it." Okay, go ahead. So he goes out in the studio, and he rips off a vocal on Don't Want to Wait Anymore that just fried me. Just really? blew me up. Drunk and everything. Yeah, on the album, that's not me. That's Bill singing. Oh, I knew that, but that's the take? And he's drunk and all that, and, it, and you know, unhappy and right. everything? Wow, good for him. Drunk and unhappy and wasted completely. And he rips out the tape, the take of Don't Want to Wait Anymore that's just blood curdling. It's, yeah. you know, it sounds like he's going to, his throat's going to explode. And it's raspy and, I mean, just amazing. And and they're all, and David and, and Umberto are just like stunned. Yeah. They're like, oh my God, fuck. And then Bill goes home. And then the next day we go, we're, we're coming back into the studio, you know, to continue recording. And Foz pulls me aside and he goes, Fee, I went, yeah, he goes, I don't know how to tell you this, but, you know, Bill came in last night drunk out of his mind and he laid down a vocal for Don't Want to Wait Anymore. And man, I, I don't know what to tell you, man, but it's better than yours. <laughs> and I just went, really? Yeah. Oh, you're fucking kidding me! You know, and I'm pissed off. <laughs> right. He goes, "Yeah, man." He goes, "You let he and I said, well, I want to hear it. Let's uh -huh. play it." Uh -huh. And they did. They played it, and I just sat there and with my mouth hanging open, going, "Oh fuck!" Did you agree? Oh, 
You agreed? I, I had to. Okay. I agreed. Yeah, I went, yeah. I went, Dave, you're right. <laughs> That's it. it it's better. Yeah. I can't believe it. But, man, he sounds like, you know, he sounds like he, there's his... His throat's going to explode into uh-huh. blood. Right. He sounds like he's bleeding when he's right. singing. He right. said, "This is incredible." I said, "It's incredible." Yeah, you know, and, it is good. And, uh, good for him. And now it's a classic. Yeah, and I said, "Okay, that's it." Yeah, you know, get erased, get rid of my vocal. <laughs> it, it's gone. And so that's how that that's song it. came down. And now we know. I, I, I had no choice. I That's a great he, story. And and it, it turns out to be the first single, mm-hmm. and you know, and he's singing it, and mm-hmm. I'm just you know like eating crow, you know, <laughs> daily. Right. When the when the you know, and then when we did the video thing, you know, it's him singing the song or you know, yeah. lip singing the song, and in like this big pool of water. It's really cool, but yeah, that's Bill. That's it. And, okay. And for years. For years, you know, he would sing it when we got, when we would tour. You know, that would be a yeah. song that he would go out and sing himself. Huh. And then when we got, you know, we broke up for a while, and then we got back together. And the Bill wasn't in the band when we got back together. And then, but everyone would say, "Oh, you have to," you know. What this was one of those songs where, like, you know, people got married. Of to course, don't want to wait. Yeah, people, you know, had so much. It was such an iconic song, so I had to learn it, it, and I had to sing it, and and uh, I still love to sing it. I mean, it's still one of my all-time favorite songs to sing, and it's so high, and it's yeah. such a blood curdler, you know. Mm-hmm. But it still fits in your range. That's something I've always thought. It's interesting to hear this story because. It doesn't sound that far removed from something that you could no. sing just as easily, but he puts yeah. this extra layer, I don't know, of drama or something on it that just yeah. elevates it. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. What's it's, he doing now? Where's Bill now? Uh, Bill is good. He had a pretty much horrific battle with drugs there toward wow. the end, but he's he's clean now and he married a wonderful woman and they live in uh, Vallejo. Oh. Uh, which is like East Bay up yeah. there, like near Oakland, mm-hmm. and and he's he does all kinds. Of, he's got a little recording studio, and he teaches engineering. He teaches guitar. Uh, he's got a couple of beautiful kids, and uh, he every once in a while he does uh, a live show uh, with his son Boone, who's also a good guitar player, and they they perform together and Excellent. they do kind of an acoustic thing. Cool. So he's 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 doing fine. Okay. You know, I we still talk. You know, I'm the p- publishing administrator for the band. Mm-hmm. So when we get publishing checks, you know, I I divvy them up and send them all out to the guys, mm-hmm. and uh, and I'm all I always talk to him, and every every now and then he comes to a show or something when we're playing up in the Bay Area. Right. So okay. he's doing he's doing well. His wife, you know, he he wanted to when we got back together, he he wanted to reunite. Mm-hmm. Before Vince died, we were gonna we planned we had planned to reunite in like ninety one, ninety one, because we broke up in eighty six, eighty seven. We, we were gonna get back together and reunite in ninety one, and that's when Vince got the gig in the Grateful Dead. Oh and right, a bass, uh, keyboard player, and so that kind of killed the reunion. And then a couple of years later, we thought, well, let's get back together again. Well, actually, Vince. In 96, when Jerry Garcia died, they reconfigured the dead, and Vince got 
axed. And so the, again, we said, well, let's get back together again. But Bill's wife wouldn't let him. She said, no, we're not going. He's straight now. He's clean. He's completely recovered. Mm-hmm. You, and I know you guys, you know, you're, it's, it's going to be just the same as it always was. It was like, no, 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 it'll be cool. But no, she wouldn't let it go back oh. on the road. And then Vince decided he didn't want to come back either. And he started doing his own little, Vince had a band called the Missing Man Formation. Oh. And they used to do like old, you know, obscure Grateful Dead songs. Wild. And then every once in a while throw in a tube song. So he worked, he did that for okay. another year. Wild. Cool. Okay. Um, but anyway. Okay. Well, that's, man, I had no idea. What a story. Okay, two left. Power Tools, second to last. I always think of this as your Kiss song. The song reminds me a little bit of Kiss. Just in the chorus, I guess. It's such a booming chorus. And I'm uh, uh-huh. I'm curious where, you know, where did Power Tools come from? Uh, Roger. There's another yeah, Roger Steve song. Power Tools was all Roger. I wrote the lyrics. And, uh, well, I didn't actually. I only wrote, uh, Roger wrote, I think, two two of the lyrics. I wrote just one verse, I think. Oh, okay. there was, I didn't write much. It was pretty much all Roger. And, and this was another song that he had, and Foz, you know, loved the chorus part. Mm-hmm. Once again, he loved mm-hmm. the power tools. And uh, if any of the songs are are kind of a corporate, corporate-like, corporate uh, mm-hmm. that one that is the it. one. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, very true. It's got such a great chorus. It's so big, and it makes yeah. sense. Once again, it's interesting. All these songs, the hallmarks of these songs, like I said, Think About Me, feels like a synth-driven song, and it was written by a synth player. And Power Tools feels like a guitar-driven song, and it was dr- written by the guitar player. These things make sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 Um, okay, last one. Let's make some noise. This is probably my second favorite song. I love it. And this song reminds me of Earth, Wind & Fire. 
and a little bit of Hall and Oates. Oh. I can kind of hear both oh. those guys in this song. It's a, it almost strikes me as a little R&B. There's the great crowd chant. Yeah. This one also has fantastic sound, uh, backing vocals, a little kind of Boogie Wonderlandish in there, a little bit. And I love your high notes. The high notes you hit, especially in that first section, fantastic singing, Fee. So what's the story with this oh, one? Thank yes. Thank you. Uh, I. Uh... I think that once again this this started with Mike. This was okay. another Mike Cotton song. Makes sense. It started with Mike okay. Cotton, and I think this is one of the ones that we all kind of contributed. Uh, I think I wrote some of the lyrics. I think "Let's Make Some Noise" was his title. I can't mm. remember. Uh, and then uh, to put in the chant thing was Bill and Roger mm. to put in the chant thing, and then the whole instrumental part at the end was the band, and it kind of had this kind of. Uh, kind of jungly feel mm -hmm. to it, and you, know, you said Earthwind and Fire. It was very African, yeah. and we made yeah. all these giant African masks. Oh, like we had a huge African mask, like a, a, a mask that's six foot tall that I used to wear. I used to come out in the African mask, and then at the end, and the girls made these like grass skirts that went all the way up to their head with a mask on the top. It was a complete African freakout. And I used to have these big stilts, and I would come out on stilts. When I was a kid, I used to make stilts, my own mm -hmm. stilts. And every, you know, I would get these like two-by-twos mm -hmm. and put a, a little pa a, a foot pad on it, and i make stilts. And I used to walk around on stilts all the time. And I kept making them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and at one point, I had a pair of stilts that were like 20 feet high. Mm. And I used to have to, this is when I lived in Scottsdale with my parents in high school. I used to have to climb up on the roof of the house uh -huh. and get uh -huh. over to the edge of the roof, our carport, to get on the stilts. 
because the stilts were 20-foot-long pieces of wood. And with the foot pads, the foot platform, gosh, it was probably 12 feet off the ground, maybe 10 or 12 feet mm-hmm. off the ground. And I would get on them and then, like, walk around the neighborhood in these these 20-foot-tall stilts. And so we did that in the show because I said, let's do – because I said, I can walk on stilts. And so we made a pair of stilts that, and, and painted them all like, you know, Africans. And I used to wear this giant – the mask, it was like a big foam rubber mask mm-hmm. that they cut out, of, cut out of a giant piece of foam rubber to make it look like an African mask. And uh, I, I'd put it on and get on the stilts, and I'd come out in the song – on these giant stilts with, with the mask hanging in front of me. So you couldn't, it just looked like this giant mask walking around. Right. And then as the song started, I would, you know, drop the mask and hop off the stilts and, and sing the song. And then in the end, at the instrumental part, you know, the girls would come out and start doing these, we, we used to call it the weeby dance. <laughs> I don't know why, but... You know, and and you know, we had Kenny Ortega at the time. So right. Kenny Ortega put this whole thing into motion with this, you know, and they would do these. We we, we tried to do. I don't know if you ever seen National Geographic things, but the Maasai tribe would do these leaps. Oh they would, right. They would jump up and down, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the, and that was and just huge, huge big tall skinny guys you know jumping three feet off the ground mm-hmm. so that's he, we choreographed this whole show where everybody was leaping to the instrumental ending of let's make some noise i love it uh, that's so interesting yeah, it was, it's uh you know what's inter- still you still do it no i mean we still do the big instrumental ending at the oh, end okay. of the at the end of the of the set, or at the end of the first half of the set, when the last song on the thing, uh, uh, the last song on the record, we uh, the band goes into this uh, extended instrumental portion with that lick, and then I, you know, I don't do I don't do much leaping, but I tried to do a little bit of leaping, and then ended up leaving the stage to make a costume change. Of course, and they go into. Uh, the, the instrumental thing and have kind of like drawn it out and made it longer than the original and yeah. then it kind of turns into a drum solo with Prairie uh, playing drums very nice and, uh, okay so yeah. anyway there you go there it's it is backwards. yeah it's interesting in my notes mm-hmm. I wrote down weird keyboard trills all over and it makes sense you saying this was a Mike Cotton song once again the keyboard yeah. puts the interesting keyboard affectations in there um, and you talking about the stilts, that would make sense why you're so good at being quaalude, because you're used to having to balance it, you know, big heights. Right. Yeah. Right. That makes sense. Big shoes. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, did this album go ever go platinum? Has it gone platinum? Oh, I don't know. God. Oh, okay. I figured it you'd... went gold. It did. It, well, I mean, yeah. that, back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but I don't know now. Okay. I don't know. Right. I know. I don't ever keep track of that kind of stuff. I was just curious. I mean, actually, it, you know, fuck, what is it? It's only been 40 years. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think it probably went platinum by now. That's why I asked. I assumed, yeah. I, I assumed. don't know. Okay, okay. I don't know. Universal owns it now, you know. Universal mm-hmm. owns everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I do get statements, 
and and royalty checks, you know, from them. I okay. I, I never really. Gosh, I don't, I, it must be on the statement somewhere. What total? What the total sales yeah. are? Well, I was I just curious. Work. I was just curious. I don't know. Well, Fee, you're uh, you're the best. Thanks for talking with me. And I love Fee Weibo rides again. And I'm so happy that you're back out there. And I hope you'll come back through Denver at some point in some configuration so I can see you again. Because uh, I, so. I love I seeing the tubes and concerts. One of my favorite things in the world to do. Thank you, man. Appreciate yeah. it, John. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Well, take care. Okay. All right. Thank take you. Care. Talk to you later. Be safe. You okay. Too. Be safe out there. The second wave is here. That's what I hear. All right. There you go. Fee Waybill of the tubes, the one and only. No one else like Fee out there. Go check out Fee Waybill Rides again. I mean, get your hands on completion too, but really the bigger moment, the bigger thing right now is that new Fee Waybill solo album. That thing is amazing, okay? Go get your hands on it. Now, we have a couple more deep dives in the can already. We've got a bonus uh, episode that's coming. Anyway, there is still a lot of content that we have to share with all of you. And uh, so for the next few weeks, depending on our schedules, there might continue to be two episodes a week. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what Yan and I can do. Anyway, thanks, everybody. We love you.